0: the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's word to give and to flourish us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have have sung of the, the praises of the coming of our Savior. Now we ask that you would preach your gospel to us so that 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 doesn't just become sentimentality, kind of a a live-action, hallmark Christmas card. Instead, Lord, we want the coming of Jesus, his life, to be informed by also his death and his resurrection so that for us it might become good news. Not just that God came near, but that he came near to rescue. We need you to convince us of this. For our hearts are slow to hear. We're we're slow to receive you. And some of us here even now are hardened to it. And so we need you to work. So we ask that you would for the sake of your name, for our good, for the good of our city as we go out among it to be bearers of this good news to others. So preach to us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is probably going to be a little more teachy than preachy. Every once in a while, a text in the Scriptures kind of warrants that. And this morning is one of those times. So, so I just want to get that out in front of us. Uh, there, there's a bumper sticker I've seen around town. Um, I'm trying to think exactly where I've seen it. I've seen it in multiple places. Uh, I think on the same car. But I've seen it. And it's a quote from Gandhi. And, and, and in it, the quote from Gandhi says, um, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Now, honestly, I wouldn't argue with Gandhi on this point. There are several points I would argue with him on. But on this one, I, I wouldn't argue him. Am, I, I am quite unlike Jesus. Uh, don't even pretend to be. But even that statement highlights, in many ways, what we tend to do with Jesus. Right? I mean, think about it. Don't we... Didn't anyone find it strange that no one seems to have a problem with Jesus? No matter, no matter your ideology, your worldview, your religious background, like nobody. How is that possible? How is it possible that no one seems to have a problem with Jesus? That every group can say Jesus is great when a great many of them think he's great for reasons that are mutually exclusive from other groups that say he's great? You know what I mean, right? Like anti-authority dude loves Jesus because he sticks it to the man, while, while like Mr. Square loves Jesus because he sets good order and rules. How does that work? The tolerance champions love Jesus because he refuses to throw the stone at the woman while the legalist loves him because he tells people that their righteousness, if they're going to be acceptable to God, has to exceed that of the most religious people in his day. We all seem to love Jesus. We use Jesus to support whatever we love and we shape him accordingly. And I believe we do this most during this season. You see, most of us in our society is no different. We love that little baby in the manger. We love him because he's so cute, so cuddly, so harmless. So during this season, we rejoice in the incarnation, but our passage this morning helps us to remember what the hymn that we will sing a little later so perfectly tells us. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. That little baby is far from harmless. He is God himself. So this morning we're going to look at this uh, in three ways. We're going to look at Christ the Creator, we're going to look at Christ the Center, and then we're going to look at Christ the Redeemer. Okay, Christ the Creator, Christ the Center, Christ the Redeemer, that outlines in your bulletin. If that's helpful, if not, leave it there. But let's, let's get started with the most logical place to start, the beginning of everything. Look down at verse 15. He says, Paul says this, He is the image, and if you have your own Bible, go ahead and underline that, He's the image of the invisible God. Now, stop there. Because if you're familiar at all with the Bible, not everyone in here is, right? So like some of us, even if we've been Christians a long time, like the Bible is still kind of a foreign book to us. We, we hear it on Sundays, but that's about it. But, but if, you, if you're a reader of the Bible, and I would encourage all of you to be at some level, when you hear someone talk about being the image of God, your thoughts are going to immediately go back to Genesis 1 and God creating humanity. That certainly would have happened for those who Paul is speaking to in the first place. Uh, but Paul is saying more than just that Jesus is human. That, that word image in the, in the Greek, the, the original language that, the, that this letter was written in, that, that word is where we get our word icon from. It means a likeness, uh, probably even more than a likeness, like a statue, like the, a, a representation of another. So when someone asks Jesus uh, whether or not Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, he asks whose image same word, whose who's, uh, acone is, is on the coin. And so when you couple this word with the idea that he gives just a few words later, the idea of the invisible God, what, what Paul is communicating to us is that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. You know, in in uh, John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus he, 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 tells, he tells his followers that anyone who has seen him Has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen Him, seen what He does, who He is, the way He acts, the way He loves, they have seen the Father. And what is crazy is that according to the story that the Bible tells, what Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, was the entire reason humanity was made in the first place. That we were in fact made to reflect God into the world. To reflect his perfect glory, to be his image. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is this perfectly. If you want to see God, friends, you look to Jesus. But he continues, Paul continues, he says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, he's also the firstborn of all creation. Now, when we hear the word firstborn, we think in terms of birth order, right? Well, that makes sense, right? Firstborn, Rick, that's the duh. But, um, and if you're thinking that, like Jesus is the first thing made, the firstborn of creation. If you're thinking that, you're not alone. There was this guy by the name of Arius in the fourth century who thought that as well. Caused a big stir. They had to get all the, all the uh, pastors and elders together from the church all over the world to this place called Nicaea, and they had this little council because he caused such a hubbub. Uh, and the reason that Arius thought this was because he read passages like this from a Greek mindset instead of from a Hebraic one in other words he read it as a Greek philosopher and less as a Jewish rabbi because in the Hebrew worldview when you talked about firstborn they didn't really care about birth order birth order who cares the only reason birth order even mattered was when it dealt with inheritance because the firstborn was the one who got all the stuff he was the heir of it so the most important thing in a Hebrew mindset about being the firstborn is that you were heir to everything. And so when Paul uses this, he's not saying Jesus was made first. And we're going to see why that's, he doesn't say that in a second. What he means is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Now again, this is pretty much what the Bible says is true of humanity. That we were created to be the heir of all things, to be the heirs of creation. So in one sense... We can say that what Paul is saying is that Jesus is truly human, but it's so much more than that. He's not just truly human, he's also very God. Look down at verse 16. Paul says this. He starts with this word, because. Now, I just want to highlight this, because we all know this, at least most of us do, because we've had some form of grammar class, even if it's been so long you can't remember. You don't start a sentence with because, right? Right? Apparently Paul does, no one else is supposed to. And so kids, if your teacher ever tells you, or your mom ever tells you, or dad, you can't start a sentence with because, be like, well, the apostle Paul did it, so if it's good enough for him. But here's the thing. We don't start a sentence with because, 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 uh, it creates a dependent clause. In other words, it it creates a, a sentence section that's dependent on what comes before. And that's so important for this. It means that what... That what Paul just said is contingent on what is going to follow. Jesus is the image. He is the firstborn because of the rest of this. Now look at that. Here's what the rest is. Because in him all things were created. Whether in heaven or upon the earth, whether things visible or invisible. Now stop there. In other words, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn because he's the creator. He created all things. And see, this is why Jesus can't possibly be part of the created order. That when He says "firstborn," He doesn't mean well the first thing made. Because if you've created all things, all means all. Secret, secret Greek lesson: all in Greek means. All, right? So, so when he's saying all, he means everything. He's created, he's created what is on earth and in heaven, what is visible, what is invisible. There's nothing left. There's nothing possibly left. He's created everything, and that's the point. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that there was nothing, it was God, and then, poof, there's something. There's heavens and earth. So what Paul is doing is he is making a bold statement here that Jesus is the creator God. He is the creator God. And I know that strikes against a lot of things we've been taught, right? We're like, Jesus is just a dude. If Jesus is a dude, how can he be God? Well, maybe Paul means something else. Listen, the only reason we try and negotiate this the way we do is because we weren't brought up in the same worldview that Paul was brought up in. Right? The Apostle Paul wasn't always a Christian. Uh, before that, he was a Pharisee, which is like a, a very strict religious sect of, of Judaism. He was brought up as, as, as he'll tell us in Philippians, like a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the great, like, in his mind, like, look, I've done the Jewish thing, and I did it better than anyone else. And so when he talks about something, uh, we need to try and get into his shoes. And we say monotheism, right? We say that word monotheism, that there's only one God. But I think a lot of times we don't even know what exactly that means. I mean, you'll say belief in one God, but there's more than that. In the Jewish worldview, to say that there is one God means that he is above all things. It means that as opposed to the kind of the pagan religious philosophies of the day, creation us, this, didn't happen because of some conflict between opposing deities. happened, And it wasn't some kind of mistake. It happened because the God who is above all things created out of his good pleasure, that God, the only God, is Lord over it all, that everything exists for him. You see, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. That's what any good Orthodox Jew would have said of the God of the Old Testament. Paul is saying it of Jesus. Everything that is said here of Jesus is something that is said of the Creator God of the Old Testament. They're the same. Paul is saying they are the same. Now here's why that matters. Again, that baby that we think is so cute and so tame. He tamed creation. He formed it. He spun the universe into being. Jesus is not just a teacher, and he's not just a pious dude. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, if you're, if you're new to Christianity, and some of you are, this is weird, right? Because I, I just said that shtick about monotheism. But listen, Christians understand that God is one in essence and three in persons. Okay. One God in three persons. One in essence, but three in persons. It's a mystery called the Trinity. He's one what and three who's. Okay. He's one what and three who's. And this means that you can't set Jesus off of God. Now listen close, because we do this here in our culture. We can't say, well, the God of the Old Testament's like this, but Jesus is like this. No, 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 no. Paul just said, they're the same guy. They're the same guy. They have to mutually inform one another. Paul's saying that guy we know in Genesis, in Exodus, even in Joshua, that's the same dude we see in Jesus. He is God. And in the incarnation, he didn't somehow uh, hit the pause button on his godhood, on his deity. Jesus is fully man, but he is also fully God. Okay? Last thing on this. This also, this idea of Jesus being God pushes against this notion that we, we have so much in our culture that, that God can't be known. Right? We like to say, well, God for me is this and God for you is that and God, because we can't, who can really know him? Well, the Bible pushes against it. As a matter of fact, Christianity pushes against it with all of its might. God can be known. He can be known because he reveals himself but, but also because he fully revealed himself. He made himself visible in the person and work of Jesus. So, Christ is the creator, but Paul's not done. He's also the center. Look down at verse 17. It says this He's before all things, and all things hold together in him. Now, that can sound a little redundant, right? Didn't didn't we already settle that? That he's first? We already got the firstborn thing, and now he says, and he's also first. I mean, he's before all things, and he's the firstborn. I mean, didn't we already settle that? Well, that language of before all things can mean temporally, right, in terms of in time. He's certainly, he existed before all things, but Paul already said that. But it also can mean he's in first place. In other words, he's supreme. He's supreme. This is what Paul means. He means that Jesus is supreme. There is nothing greater than Jesus, nothing greater. There is nothing greater, and all things, he says, hold together in him. Now, there are two aspects to this. Again, so listen, listen close. This is what we, one of those aspects is what we call in Christian theology, providence. Okay? Providence. And it means this. The, the normal view of God in our culture is that he kind of formed the universe, shaped it, and then kind of spun it off and just kind of let it go, right? And now it's governed by these impersonal laws. It's kind of a machine that runs unless God decides to like, interject himself into it, right? And that's what we call miracles, when God somehow interjects himself into the normal working of things. That's very lovely. It's just not in the Bible, right? The Bible's view of things is not mechanistic, it's personalistic. It's that God didn't create the universe to work by itself. Nothing in creation, including you and me, were designed to work by ourselves. We, were all, we are all dependent on him, The world isn't governed by impersonal laws. It's not governed by fate or whatever you would have. It's governed by God. Paul says Jesus literally holds it all together. The writer of the Hebrew, uh, to the letter of the Hebrews will say that he upholds, he keeps everything running, all things by the word of his power, by the very word out of his mouth. So in one sense, it's talking about what we call providence. The second aspect that he is... In, 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 in Him all things hold together, is that he, it means that He is the center of things. What I mean by that is that Jesus, Paul is declaring that Jesus actually makes sense of everything. That He's the one that makes sense of everything. And what this gets to is the stubborn insistence of Christianity and of the Bible in general, that Jesus is the center of the story of the world. It, in many ways, it's very appropriate the way we do our dating of things, right? Now, I know that we've changed that in scholarly circles. Now we say before the common era and now the common era. But before that, our, our Western society as a whole had gotten that, that there's, there's everything that happened before Jesus, there's everything that happened after, but he is the center of everything. And he is the one who makes sense of everything. And that brings us to Verse 18. Where Paul talks about him as the head of the body, the church. Now, look, structurally, and I know I've probably used up my grammar quota for the day, but just stay with me. Structurally, these verses, uh, 17 and 18, if you're, if you're looking at this as it was probably originally written and recorded in the, all the, in, in the original language, these are the center of everything. This is the center of this, of this entire passage. Which kind of means that it's the point. These are the point. The fact that Jesus is the creator leads us to see that he is the one that holds creation together and makes sense of it all. The fact that he is the head of the body, the church, leads us into the last part. We'll talk about how Paul's going to finish this. Okay? At this point, what I want to say is this. What Paul means here is that the entire point of the church, the entire point of Christianity, is Jesus. Right? I can't say this enough. If you remove Jesus from Christianity there is no Christianity. And and I say this in regards to other religions a ton, but now let me say it in regards to those who claim Christianity. Okay, In other words, who claim that what they're talking about, what they're preaching, what they're believing is Christianity. If someone is proclaiming a kind of Christianity in which you can take Jesus out, the work that he did, the life that he lived, maybe just leave his words, but remove him, that isn't Christianity. There's nothing helpful about that. It may be moral? Certainly, probably very moral. It may be socially responsible. It may be a lot of things, but it isn't Christianity. Christianity isn't about Jesus' teachings. It's about Jesus. Christianity isn't about Jesus' example. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did, not whether we can do the same things. It's about Him. He is the head of the church. In the ancient world, to say that something is the head of something else. Like uh, uh, in the Roman Empire, you would say that that Caesar is the head of the empire. What you would say, what that meant is, is that the head provides life to the rest of the body. That's the way the ancients saw it. And so to say that Jesus is the head of the church means that the church, us, the whole church, receives its life from Jesus and without Him there is none. It's all about Jesus, friends. These two verses, the this, this center, 17 and 18, remind us that not just faith, but life, not just the spiritual realm, but everything is about Jesus. So that's Christ, the creator, Christ the center. Now let's look at Christ the Redeemer. Look down at the end of verse 18. Paul says, he is the first Redundant, again. The firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have first place. Now, this phrase, honestly, only makes sense if we remember some of the story that the Bible tells. Because we've already seen God as creator, right? He made all things out of his good pleasure. In other words, he wanted creation to be here. It's not an accident. It's not, it's not something that he was kind of like, oops, messed up on that one, let's do it. No, it's meant to be. With humanity, when we betrayed him, it set all of creation, not just us, but all of creation into futility and chaos. Now, most of us, if we have a general kind of cultural knowledge of the Bible, we assume that after that happened, God was kind of done with creation. He's like, His goal now is just to take us, take the the privileged few, kind of get us out of here, right? Get us off into heaven and be done with things. Well, that's not the position of the Bible. God intended for creation. And so the work of Jesus is, in the largest, most cosmic sense to renew it to make all things new Jason prayed that this morning but because the problem started with humanity if creation is to be made new first humanity will need to be made new and that's what this section is talking about when it talks about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead it means that not only does Jesus have first place in creation but also in the new creation you see in much of the church especially in the evangelical tradition of which we are a part we make much of the cross don't we? We make much of the cross of Christ. We spend a lot of time talking about it. We're going to be talking about it in a second, as a matter of fact. And we do that because it's kind of a big deal. But it isn't the only deal. Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose again. And so the New Testament calls him the first fruits from among the dead. So let me draw these strings together. When Jesus rose from the dead, the first taste of the world made new burst onto the scene. See, Jesus didn't die and go to heaven. It's not like he died and then kind of his spirit went up to go be with God. No, no. He rose with a body from the grave. He came out of it. There was nothing left in the grave. That was what puzzled everyone, right? What do we do with this? There's no body. There was... He's dead. Now he's not. Dead now. Linens folded. Like, what do we do with this? He rose with a body. And as he ascended, he went up into heaven with his body and is seated right now at the right hand of God with a body. With a body. And he has done so as the first taste of what all of creation will be like. So, not only, listen to me, not only is he the beginning of everything, not only is he the center of everything, he's also the goal of everything. He's the beginning, he's the center, and he's the goal. The thing that all of creation is leaning towards is what Jesus is now. He is the goal of the redemptive work of God in the world. And the way all of that comes about, though, is in verse 20. Look there. It says, And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I told you we were going to talk about the cross. Kind of a big deal. All this talk about Jesus as creator, all this talk about Jesus as a center, and Jesus as a goal is great. But without this verse, it's all Pollyanna garbage. It's all wishful thinking. Because we know this. We look around and we see a world tearing itself apart. We see our own souls. We can't seem to do what we want to do. Everything everything seems to move against us. We see it in our homes, in in our our relationships, our neighborhoods, our city. Everything is broken. Everything. But Jesus came to reconcile those things, friends. That word reconcile is important because to reconcile something is to to deal with it in, in regards to relationship, right? It's a relational word. And that is important because the Bible tells us that all of these fractures that we see inside our own souls, in our relationships with those closest to us, in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, that all of these uh, fractures stem from one primary relational fracture. That is with God. All of humanity is by, now by nature turned away from Him, turned away from God, driving towards independence from Him when we were made to be dependent on Him. And so we've betrayed God and we've messed everything up. But God promised to do something about it. And this is the glory of this whole passage. Because you see, in non-Christian thought, and I know when I'm about to say this, some of you are going to be like, that's what I thought Christianity was. I know, because there's a lot of things that pass itself off as Christian, and they're not. There are lots of steeples with crosses on them that have long since abandoned the faith. But in non-Christian thought, God is the object of reconciliation. In other words, we have these things we have to do to reconcile ourselves to God. But what's in the Bible, what's in Christianity, is that God is the subject of reconciliation. That He is the one who actively pursues it. That God though offended, moves to reconcile us to himself. In other words, long before we are ever thinking of, you know, I think it would be a good idea to get right with God. He is moving towards us, reconciling us to himself. And this was done, Paul says, by the blood of his cross. Now, the cross as a whole only makes sense, ultimately, if we keep in mind everything we've already said. Because if we don't, if we don't keep in mind everything that Paul has already said in this passage, the cross looks tragic, maybe. Maybe unjust. Some would even say it looks abusive. Right? Maybe you've heard that. The cross is like cosmic child abuse. But you have to remember everything we've said. First, remember, Jesus is God. That means that the cross was not imposed on Jesus. He's like, I don't want to do that. I don't, Daddy, do I have to? No. Jesus chose this. He says in, in John's Gospel, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. No one would include the Father, right? No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Second, remember that this is a relational issue that we have with God. Not a purely... Uh, juridical one, uh, meaning um, not purely law-based. In other words, we've betrayed a person and not a code. We betrayed God. We sinned. And the penalty for that, the guilt that comes from that, means bearing the wrath of God. Betrayals always bring guilt, right? You know this. You've been betrayed. Maybe you've done the betraying. Certainly you have. We know that it brings guilt. This is nothing new. We all know this. And forgiveness isn't just pretending that the offense didn't happen. That's called lying, right? That's not forgiveness. That's lying. Uh, forgiveness is the offended person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the offender. And this is what the cross is about. God came in Jesus and bore his own wrath, bore his own judgment, his own justice in our place. And so on the cross, we see God in the place of sinful people, Like us. And this is what I meant by God being the subject and not the object of reconciliation. God takes the initiative to forgive. Not asking us to do it. Because frankly, we can't. You know this, right? You cannot make up for any betrayal. I don't care if that betrayal was like um, being late to to, uh, an appointment or a date or getting home. Uh, staying late at work when you weren't supposed to da da da, da, da or whether that's as bad uh, the worst kind of betrayal you can imagine you cannot make up for it if we're to be forgiven it will be because the one we've offended the one we've wounded the one we've betrayed will freely choose to forgive us which means that they will be freely choosing to bear the weight to bear the pain of what we've done and to not make us pay for it even though frankly we deserve to Which means that what we do then is simply a response. That's what repentance and faith are. They are responses to what God has done in Jesus. You don't, faith isn't like, well, I I have faith and that's better than so and so, who doesn't? That is simply a response to what Jesus has already done. This is why Christianity without Jesus is worthless. Because without Him, we are left in our sin, we are left in our independence, we are left in our brokenness. With him, though, with him, it doesn't matter what we've done or who we've been. We simply respond to him by turning from our broken ways and placing our faith in Jesus, and we are reconciled to God. Friends, Jesus, whether we want to um, think about the, the, the baby that we've been celebrating for the last four weeks, or the great Redeemer God that Paul is talking about here, he is the center of everything. What we celebrate in this season is God coming to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Seeking us out when we hated Him. Seeking us out when we loved our independence. And loving us enough to bear judgment to reconcile us to Himself. He is the center. It's all about Jesus. And if it isn't, it is worthless. So friends, that's what we sing of. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the grace that's ours in Christ, that he is our creator, the center of everything and our goal. Lord, for those of us here in this room who have never really wrestled with that, have never grappled with Jesus as the center of everything, we pray that you would open their hearts to do so. For those of us who can so easily grow so accustomed to that, that it just passes over us as Meaningless, I pray that you would help us open our eyes again to see the wonder of it all. That you, Lord, though offended, sought us out. That you, though, though betrayed, bore the weight of that betrayal for us. And give us grace to respond again in faith and repentance, because even that's not of us. It's your gift. So we ask for that even now. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.